Welcome to Lung Cancer Considered, the podcast of the International Association for the Study of Lung Cancer, a global organization dedicated to research and practice advances in thoracic oncology. You can find all our podcasts on SoundCloud and ISLC.org and the newsroom. I'm your host, Dr. Narjos Flores. Hello, I'm Dr. Narjos Flores. I'm the Associate Director of the Cancer Care Equity Program at Dana-Farber Cancer Institute and a member of the faculty at Harvard Medical School. ESMO 2022 was the first ESMO to be in person since the pandemic in 2020. Exciting and innovative research was presented and shared uh, with views across the globe, live or also online. Many friends and colleagues had the opportunity to see each other for the first time in a while. Many of the social media posts were so exciting. I'm taking my first flight in two and a half years and taking the train to Paris. While I could not attack in person to this meeting, it was palpable, the excitement in the data. Today, we have two very special guests that are gonna talk to us about the ESMO 2022 highlights. Today, we have Dr. Josh Royce. He's a thoracic medical oncology at MedStar Georgetown Lombardian Cancer Center in Washington, D.C. He's also an assistant professor in the Department of Medicine at Georgetown University Medical Center. He specializes in lung cancer, mesothelioma, and thymoma. He research focuses on incorporating novel concepts and groundbreaking science to develop innovative clinical trials that advance the cares of all patients with lung cancer and mesothelioma. In addition, he recently just received a Career Development Award for Longevity. Welcome. Thank you, Najas. Uh, I'm really excited to be here and looking forward to a great discussion. We also have Dr. Janice Mancias is currently working um, as director of the Oncology Department and Clinical Trials Unit at the Henry Dunat Hospital Center in Athens, Greece. He has received fellowship from the American Society of Clinical Oncology, the European Society of Medical Oncology, and the Hellenic Society of Medical Oncology. He specializes in translational research in thoracic oncology, as well as innovative clinical trials in early and advanced stage no small cell lung cancer. Welcome, doctor. Thank you very much, Narjas. Thank you, Jos. Thank you for having me with you. I'm so excited to talk about you. This was an ESMO that was packed with data in thoracic oncology. But before we start dissecting those clinical trials, progression-free survivals, and confidence interval, let's start discussing how it was to be back in person, how important it is for you and for our colleagues to meet in person initiate collaborations, and have that human connection that many of us cherish and miss. Josh, how was the experience to be back in ESMO in person? Yeah, so I mean, everything, I echo everything you said. It was everything. I mean, I was was really grateful to be able to attend both ASCO and ESMO in person this year. And, you know, there really is no substitute for the ability to uh, make new connections, to revisit old connections, catch up, uh, collaborate, uh, all while uh, you know being the first to see some really new, exciting data. 
And I think it's particularly important for trainees where really it is a, a very unique opportunity to uh, collaborate, uh, to network and, and really figure out where you want your career to go. So it was, it was a wonderful experience. Janice, how was for you to be back in Paris and back in ESMO in person? I completely agree with Josh. Uh, for me personally, it was the first big live meeting after two and a half years. I was able to meet in person and network again with dear colleagues from all over the world. This was an amazing experience, an amazing feeling that I have really missed throughout the pandemic. Uh, even more important, I had the opportunity to to meet, to meet again with friends. I personally had the chance to visit uh, Paris, my beloved city where I specialized in thoracic oncology in Gustave Roussy. And I also had the opportunity to exchange our news and views on recent scientific advances in thoracic oncology with colleagues that we had not seen each other for a long time. And this was something unique. Thank you. I'm not going to ask about the food because I'm going to get jealous. So <laughs> let's talk about data now. <laughs> um, it's time to discuss the data in thoracic oncology. First, let's talk about the results of Cobreak 200. The amount of social media posts and memes that came out of Cobreak 200 uh, is hard to describe. This is the primary analysis of the phase three Cobreak 200 and patients with KRAS, G12C, mutant, no small cell lung cancer who had disease progression and platino-based chemotherapy and immune checkpoint inhibitor. The study met his primary endpoint, which is a statistical significance in the improvement of progression-free survival. We are comparing sotorazid versus doxytaxel. The hazards ratio was 0.66 after a median follow-up of 17.7 months. But overall survival did not differ between groups, although the study was no power for overall survival uh, benefit of differences. So Tara said those has a more favorable safety profile than Doncitaxel. Janice, you were very involved in this study. Can you break down some of these results and how can we apply this data to everyday practice? Thank you, Nara, just indeed for providing me the opportunity to discuss this very important trial. First of all, uh, I want to say that uh, I really understand why many colleagues were not that excited uh, from the results of this trial. It was a much anticipated trial. And as you know, the first randomized phase three trial of a KRAS inhibitor in the second line setting of non-small cell lung cancer. Uh, as you all know, the trial was added as a last minute addition at the third presidential symposium in ESMO. And this of course generated a lot of enthusiasm and expectations uh, regarding the results of the trial. And of course, overall survival benefit is something that we all want to see in the second line setting of non-small cell lung cancer. But to interpret the results of code break 200, we really need to look into the context of the trial in terms of trial design. As we all know, while the trial was ongoing, Sotoracib gained accelerated approval by FDA on the basis of the exciting results of code break 100. This resulted in significant amendment uh, first of all, in the sample size of patients, practically reduced by half 
from 660 to approximately 330. And crossover was allowed for ethical reasons following accelerated approval. These facts resulted in change of the primary endpoint from overall survival to progression-free survival. And of course, as you already mentioned, Nargest, the study became underpowered to detect any overall survival benefit. Moreover, we have to uh, uh, emphasize that there was a crossover rate of approximately 28%, which was increased to 35% by 23 patients who were initially assigned to the docetax alarm, subsequently withdrew consent and received the KRAS inhibitor outside of the trial. So taken all these under account and into consideration, still the trial showed that treatment with sotoracib more than doubled the probability of being progression-free at 12 months, reducing the probability of disease progression by one third, and importantly, with an oral agent uh, with presumably a better tolerability profile compared to intravenous docetaxel. So in my opinion, Codebreak 200 is a practice-changing study despite the aforementioned limitations. Giannis, thank you so much. It's so great to have this scoop from one of the investigators about the trial. I think that's very good. We got like the little scoop about consent. Josh, how do you see the data for Cobreak 200? Yeah, so I, I agree with everything Giannis said. I think this is definitely a confirmatory study uh, in my practice. I think this reaffirms the benefit of sotoracib that we saw initially with the code break 100. And again, in my practice, sotoracib is definitely the standard of care in the subsequent line setting. I think one additional important consideration is, is related to toxicity. And while overall the toxicity profile was definitely favorable for sotoracib, there did appear to be a higher rate of grade three diarrhea and transaminitis. I put it at probably around 12% and 8% respectively. And we have some emerging data to suggest that perhaps the interval between immunotherapy and sotoracid may be important in this. And so while I would never not prescribe sotoracid to someone who was previously on a frontline immunotherapy-based strategy, I think it's important that we closely monitor for these toxicities because they definitely are there and something that we're going to have to account for in prescribing this medication for our patients. Thank you, Josh. I think it's very good. And I think tolerability remains an issue with sororacid. We have some data about sororacid and uh, immunotherapy that also help us understand toxicity. Um, I give my patients very, we close follow-up when I prescribe the medication. And of course, the, the, the pill burden is still high. Uh, that's also that, you know, taking that into account. Um, and we can now have a talk about thoracic oncology without talking about immunotherapy. So much data was presented at ESMO. Um, you know, maybe some investigators were waiting to submit until we have an in-person meeting. But we need to talk about the updated data from Checkmate 816 or Checkmate 816 <laughs> that evaluated the use of neoadjuvant nivolumab plus chemotherapy. This trial was initially presented in 2021 AACR annual meeting, and we had the pleasure of having Dr. Forty here uh, in the podcast discussing the results very early. At 2022 ESMO, investigators 
cover secondary analysis reported in patients with or without uh, evidence of pathologic response, leave node involvement. Josh, can you walk us through some of these results as we continue to learn more and more from Checkmate A16? Sure, absolutely. And uh, just to refresh our audience, uh, Checkmate 816 was a randomized global phase three clinical trial that enrolled patients with potentially resectable stage 1B to 3A non-small cell lung cancer as adjudicated by the AJCC seventh edition criteria. These patients were randomized one-to-one to receive either three cycles of histology-specific chemotherapy or three cycles of histology-specific chemotherapy with nivolumab. And co-primary endpoints of the study were pathologic complete response and event-free survival. And as we know, this was a positive trial. The pathologic complete response was improved with the addition of nivolumab with a PCR rate in the intention-to-treat population of 24% with an event-free survival hazard ratio of 0.63. What we previously learned was that event-free survival appeared to be longer in those who achieved a pathologic complete response and in those with ctDNA clearance, and that the depth of pathologic response may be important in event-free survival. So in the presentation at ESMO by Janice Tao, we saw an extension of that looking specifically at how involvement of lymph nodes affect that event-free survival. And this was defined as any visible tumor at the time of resection, either intact tumor or evidence of tumor response in lymph nodes. And what we found was that this evidence of of tumor involvement in lymph node or response uh, did not appear to affect a long-term event-free survival. The hazard ratios were very similar at 0.70 in both groups. Uh, In addition, when looking at the breakdown by present residual viable tumor and really the presence of tumor in the primary lesion and lymph nodes, not surprisingly, those who had complete response in primary tumor and lymph node had the highest event-free survival, and those who had intact tumor in the primary tumor and lymph node had the lowest uh, event-free survival. And similar to prior data, uh, we found that the percent regression of tumor appeared to mirror present residual viable tumor and its ability to predict event-free survival. So I think the big take-home here is that we're getting more and more data to support pathologic response in neoadjuvant chemoimmunotherapy studies uh, as a potential biomarker of long-term benefit. And I think this will be very important as we're talking about new and exciting neoadjuvant studies adjuvant studies and trials that will report that include both neoadjuvant and adjuvant. And I think pathologic response, presence of ctDNA and ctDNA clearance, and minimal residual disease will all be very important in determining the most effective treatment strategy for our patients. Thank you, Josh. And to the two of you, and I will start with Janice, have you incorporated Checkmate A16 to your practice? And how has been your experience with that? Uh, thank you, especially for that question, Nargis. As you know, um, Checkmate 816 uh, has not been approved yet in Europe by EMA. So uh, in many European countries, including Greece, this is an off-label uh, indication still. So if we want to use neoadjuvant nivolumab together with chemotherapy, we need to ask uh, for an off-label approval of the drug. It is possible. In my clinical practice, Uh, I tend to do this, especially in patients with uh, 3A disease. Uh, Of course, this is a personal aspect, and uh, it comes from the data that Josh just uh, presented to us, and the um, greater magnitude of benefit 
from the addition of nivolumab in patients with uh, initial stage 3A disease, showing to us that uh, in these patients, probably there is uh, a micrometastatic spread of the disease already at the time of the diagnosis and enhancing our notion that probably 3A disease is, is already a systemic disease. So in our MDT, we discuss these cases and especially in patients with 2B and 3A disease, we tend to, to prefer this regimen and ask for an off-label approval until this strategy becomes also available officially in Europe. Thank you. I have personally put two patients in the regimen. One had a complete pathology. She had a complete pathology response. You know, we don't get these in lung cancer very often, right? So it's quite a new phase of treatment. Yeah, my, my first patient that I put on this regimen also had a complete pathologic response. They were a squamous patient. So definitely very exciting to, to see that. And I can only imagine uh, knowing the migraines that are induced by communicating with insurance companies. I can only imagine, to be honest, what you have to go through uh, to get approval of really a life-changing regimen such as this for your patients. I, I think things are changing. And this is one um, moment to remember biomarker testing because neoadjuvant therapy is exciting, but we know there are a group of patients with target mutations that were not included in these trials and they have limited benefit from immunotherapy. So remember the biomarker testing, particularly patients with EJFR mutation is essential. So what is a little bit off script, I wanna know from the two of you, now that we have neoadjuvant therapy, are we testing these, are you testing these patients at diagnosis for NGS, for example? Janice? This is the $1 million question. This is something we are really striving uh, for uh, in my country. We're trying to change the mentality of the whole uh, healthcare system. In my opinion, it becomes imperative to have this NGS testing at the time of diagnosis, uh, even in early stage non-small cell lung cancer. Uh, as you, we, you have already uh, clearly shown this data can influence and can change our clinical practice. So this information can change, has the potential to transform the way we treat our patients. So I make any, uh, any uh, possible effort. And in my country, we also have a nationwide uh, program uh, that uh, provides this NGS testing in patients with early stage non-small cell lung cancer as well. And we try to have this information upfront and to discuss this in the MTD on a weekly basis, because both immunotherapy and oncogene addiction are dynamically entering the arena of early stage disease. And this information can really be practice changing for our patients. Josh? Yes, I, I, I completely agree with Giannis. I think one interesting point is, you know, for the longest time, we have made a concerted effort in the thoracic community to really push for next generation sequencing. Uh, you know, that the single gene assays, the reflexive panels are really not enough. But I almost kind of feel that that might be uh, the method to get some of the answers quickly to move with the neoadjuvant approach. Uh, our practice has been actually to, in select cases, 
utilize some of these single gene tests um, and panels to look, you know, at least to rule out EGFR ALK, maybe look for a KRAS, uh, ROS1, so that you can get an initial snapshot of, of whether or not it's likely uh, that a patient has a driver. Also factoring in other things, smoking status, disease histology, you know, might be a little bit less concerned for a squamous patient. Uh, but we have started adopting some of these, you know, more reflex panels to get this answer sooner uh, to move to a chemoimmunotherapy approach. I think the alternative is kind of like what we see in the metastatic setting, uh, give a cycle of chemotherapy while you're waiting uh, for NGS results, and then you could potentially add in the immunotherapy. Uh, so I think either approach is reasonable, uh, but it's definitely a very important question and something important that we will need to communicate and collaborate with, uh, in particular, our colleagues in the community. I agree with the two of you. And I think it's everyone's responsibility to talk and do biomarker testing, you know? So lung cancer care has become more complex. It's no longer carbotaxel. And that's why we need to work with more people. Um, we are going to continue to move in some of the data discussed at ESMO. So since 2020, you all remember the first ASCO during the pandemic, I remember being in Wisconsin and hearing the results of the Adora trial. People were waiting for it. So at ESMO 2020, we is not a section. We have some updates about Adora. This is the standard follow-up data from the Adora trial. To remember, Adora is osimertinib in the adjuvant setting for patients that have resection. The study show disease-free survival benefit with the incorporation of osimertinib versus placebo in these patients, particularly in patients with stage 1B to 3A. Of course, the patients with 3A disease had the most uh, benefit. They had a reduced risk or resist recurrence, particularly in patients with stage 2 to 3A compared to placebo, right? Doing the osimertinib for three years. Uh, median disease-free survival was 65.8 months, and the patients that received osimertinib versus 21.9 months among the patients that received placebo. Janice, can you talk to us a little bit about these results and what this really means in the day-to-day -day practice? Of course, uh, Nargis, this was uh, another uh, much-anticipated trial, especially because this was the four-year update of Adora, and as you already mentioned, according to the design of the trial, osimertinib was administered for a maximum of three years. So a lot of investigators were expecting to see how the results would be in the four-year uh, update. So after many of these patients that were enrolled in the trial discontinued the osimertinib after the three-year uh, landmark. So what we see is that ADORA continues to be a strongly positive trial. Uh, as you already mentioned, a huge difference in the median disease-free survival corresponding to a hazard ratio of 0.23. It's slightly different from 0.17, which was the first announcement of the, of the ADORA trial, but still clinically relevant and significant. Um, in my opinion, uh, the effect on CNS was striking. Uh, let me just remind you that the hazard ratio for patients uh, having CNS disease was 0.24. And in patients that did not have CNS disease at diagnosis, there was just a 2% probability of CNS progression 
relapse at three years with osimertinib. So this is something that really uh, emphasizes on the protection on the CNS that the next generation EGFR TKIs provide to our patients. Uh, we have to mention that uh, there was a, a QTC prolongation reported in 9% of patients. So this might be a potential concern that we need to, to look upon our patients. And regarding the discontinuation of osimertinib at three years, it is true that in Adora, the curves also seem to exhibit uh, what we call a so-called waning effect that we also see in similar trials with TKIs in other indications. So once the TKI is interrupted, we can see that the curve becomes a little bit steeper. And this, of course, generated, as you both know, a lot of discussion after ESMO, whether osimertinib really prevents these uh, recurrences or just delays these recurrences after discontinuation of the drug. And I would really love to hear the opinion from both of you, Nargest and Josh, regarding this uh, discussion that was triggered by Adora results. But uh, I believe that we have to see a little bit more while the study matures uh, to become more mature regarding overall survival data, which are still uh, rather immature. And uh, we want to see there to, to answer the critical question, the $1 million question, whether osimertinib really prevents some of these recurrences, especially in stage 1b, where it really exhibits great results, or just delays these recurrences to a later stage. And of course, this also poses the question of whether we should continue osimertinib beyond three years maybe in an effort to, to further prevent these recurrences. And I would really love to hear your opinion on that. Josh, you can chime in and I will add at the end. Wow, I really wish I had the answer to these questions. <laughs> Obviously, these are, as you said, the million dollar and trillion dollar questions, perhaps quite literally. Uh, you know, I think we obviously we don't have that answer. I think if earlier trials of earlier generation TKIs are any indicator, then I think, yes, I think the concern is that if one stops the TKI, uh, is there going to be overall a long-term overall survival difference compared to someone who were to initiate the TKI at the time of recurrence? I think there's obviously still important implications for keeping someone disease-free. Uh, I think you highlighted it, Giannis, especially when you talk about CNS recurrence. I think the morbidity of uh, a potential recurrence is is definitely important. That's not trivial. Uh, but I do agree that uh, there is a potential uh, that it will be difficult to discern an overall survival benefit, especially uh, since patients who recur uh, from the placebo arm will, will then receive osimertinib in a standard of care situation. I think another important consideration to that point, especially when we talk about duration of osimertinib and the potential to stop it, is uh, frequency of imaging. And I think it calls into question uh, how frequently, for example, we should do CNS imaging. Uh, for my patients, I tend to get at least a yearly uh, brain MRI uh, for my patients who have EGFR alterations, uh, including in this situation, post-resection. Uh, and I'm curious uh, for your guys' practice, Giannis and Nargis, uh, for that, and, and obviously for the answer to uh, Giannis's original questions. I think there's always a concern that we're treating micrometastatic disease. I think for stage 1B, I have a very honest discussion with my ladies. Uh, because it's three years of drug, right? And I 
you know, the three years were selected because of the subgroup analysis of gefitinib showing that patients that were in the drug longer than 18 months benefit the most. So I have a very good discussions with them because it's not only hard with the adverse events that Janice mentioned, but also brings financial toxicity. Some patients that are underinsured. Uh, Osimertinib is not an easy drug. Um, it is not cheap and it has adverse events, right? It is a great thing that we're incorporated into our practice, but we need to remember that some of these patients may have potentially been cured. So we are getting them to osimertinib. It's a very different conversation. About CNS imaging, I do image my ladies a year or so, like you, Josh, um, because we know that's a very large effect in comorbidity and quality of life for our patients. But I also sometimes have insurance pushback for doing the brain MRI in a patient that in theory is, you know, free of disease. Uh, but I follow them, I educate them. And regarding cardiotoxicity, we published a case series uh, when I was younger <laughs> about heart failure induced by osimertinib. And the difference between now and um, or other patients is that patients with metastatic disease, you know, they need to remain in the osimertinib to keep the disease control. It is a different conversation when a patient has a side effect in the adjuvant setting, because they are like, how much do I really need to stay in this drug? And I don't have the answer for them because I don't know, right? How long they have been in the drug. And if it is continuing the drug, I don't know, two years out, like how much that we affect the overall outcome. And it's very patient individual, like independent. I'm going to move forward a little bit because we have so much data to talk about. And lung cancer continues to be presented at the main stage in all large oncology meetings. And ESMO was not, ESMO was not the exception. The IPOS trial was presented during the presidential symposium. These are the results for a phase three study of first-line atezolizumab versus single-agent chemo in patients with no small cell lung cancer that are not eligible for platinum-based chemotherapy. Patients were randomized to atezolizumab versus chemo two to one. The median age, and I want people to hear this, is 75 years, very different than some other patient populations. And 31% of patients were older than 80 years old. Around 83% of the patients have an eco-performance status of two or higher. The median follow-up was around 41 months. Atisalusumab, so significantly improved overall survival in this population. And of course, easier to tolerate. And the benefit was the same across subtypes. I'm going to start uh, with Josh. How do you see these results and how your perception about atisalusumab and patients that potentially are more fragile may have changed. Yeah, so I think first of all, this is just an incredibly important study. And I think authors definitely should be commended for doing this. I think we need more trials that include a true real world population. And I'm not just talking about expanded access programs, retrospective uh, evaluations. We really need perspective data such as was done here with the IPSO study. And I think that that's incredibly important. I think it was, so there was some interesting data here. I think it was interesting that we saw benefit transcend pdl one expression levels. This is not something we've seen with frontline IO-based trials in the past. I also would be curious to know what 
uh, declared someone as ineligible for platinum doublet chemotherapy, uh, having a little more information there to really further flush out what this patient population is uh, will be important. All that to be said, I, I was very uh, impressed by this data. I, I do think that the ultimate impact in the United States will be somewhat muted by the fact that we have pembrolizumab approved based off of results of the Keynote 042 study. We have pembrolizumab approved for those with pdl one expression of 1% or greater. And while we believe that the benefit in the study was primarily driven by the pdl one high expressions of 50% or greater, I think that we've all adopted a practice where for those with borderline performance status or who you, who you suspect may not tolerate chemotherapy well uh, and have expression levels between 1% and 49%, that pembrolizumab is a good option. That said, if I had a patient who was pdl one negative, who I was concerned about tolerability of chemotherapy, uh, I would not hesitate to advocate for pembrolizumab based off this data. Uh, but I'm really curious for what Giannis has to say, uh, uh, given the differences in approvals uh, that he has in Greece uh, than we do uh, in the United States. Um, I want to really echo Joss's words in terms of the significance of the trial. I really love uh, Ipsos. It's a pragmatic trial for patients that we see every day in our clinics. And uh, we are not really sure. We don't have that strong evidence on how to best deal with them. Um, I also have a concern regarding the criteria defined to uh, determine uh, platinum eligibility. So talking about uh, uh, patients that were unfit to receive platinum-based chemotherapy, this is something that we can uh, uh, discuss uh, and uh, really refine this criteria of how to select our patients. But in real practice, we see very often these kind of patients that uh, are not fit for platinum-based chemotherapy, patients with substantial comorbidities, elderly patients, patients with uh, an echo PS of at least two. So in Europe, as uh, Josh already uh, stressed out, we don't have the uh, option, as you know, of pembrolizumab as first-line treatment in patients whose tumors express PD-L1 at least 1%. We do not have this option. So in this perspective, Ipsos has really the potential to transform the care of patients uh, in Europe because our options in the first-line treatment for these fragile patients were really limited. So these two chemotherapeutic agents used, uh, namely gemcitabine and vinorelbine, were actually the, the real world situation in Europe uh, in patients that were not fit for platinum-based chemotherapy. We administered monotherapy with these agents with moderate uh, tolerability and even more modest uh, responses. So, so this trial, provides a really new perspective, a really new option for our patients. We don't have the option of pembrolizumab uh, in first line for all comers in Europe. So atezolizumab has the potential here to become the new standard of care for this subgroup of patients. Thank you so much, Janis. I think we continue to to have more options for our patients. And that is what is most important here is that we have options that are approved and available. Um, and I cannot continue talking about this without mentioning that for low to middle income countries, immunotherapy is very limited, uh, usually to private 
healthcare services and not the public healthcare services. So we need to continue not only to study immunotherapy and more fragile patients, but also to improve access to these very great drugs to everyone around the world. Now that we continue to, to talk about more and more data from ESMO, um, I want to talk to Janice a little bit. You're a global leader in thoracic oncology. Why do you think some of the challenges, just to set way to what I just said, we bring in precision oncology to low middle income countries. We get new, new drugs, new and new combinations, but there's still so many disparities that many patients don't get this drug. Like talk about getting osimertinib in some countries is like erlotinib may be available. What do you think can be done or what are your thoughts on this? Thank you, especially for this question, Arjust. First of all, thank you for your kind words. I wish I deserved them. But uh, speaking as an oncologist coming from uh, uh, a middle-income country like Greece, I believe this question, this discussion is the most important discussion of the whole uh, podcast. Um, Greece is a typical European country in terms that it follows strictly EMA approvals. That means that when a drug uh, gains a positive opinion from uh, European medicine uh, administration, then uh, it becomes uh, available in Greece through several channels of uh, approval from the national healthcare system. Of course, then there is a long process until the drug um, enters what we call the, the positive list in Greece. So the, Greece, the, the list of drugs that are going to be reimbursed and uh, secondly, uh, when the drug is going to obtain a price, which is a result of negotiations, uh, especially for expensive drugs like osimertinib, like uh, all targeted agents, novel immunotherapies, and novel compounds that are coming like uh, antibody drug conjugates by specific antibodies. So all this goes through a hard process of negotiation with the national health system authorities. And once the drug uh, obtains a prize, it becomes completely reimbursable by the national healthcare system and can be administered to the patients. There are, uh, as, you, as you realize, this is a long process that is time consuming. And sometimes we struggle to obtain access for that for some of these new drugs to our patients. But generally speaking, I can say that in our country, we are lucky enough uh, to have these uh, special procedures that we follow for drugs that are uh, approved by FDA and not yet uh, adopted by EMA, or for drugs that, uh, uh, as we say, are um, uh, uh, off-label indications. So we have some special committees when the oncologist can go and submit uh, for access, submit an application for access to a specific drug. And this goes through a health technology assessment as well as a strict uh, medical assessment. And if the application is well-documented, and based on solid clinical evidence, then the drug is approved. So yes, we have the way to answer your, your initial question. We have the ways to, to provide access to our patients for this drug, but sometimes the procedure can be uh, really uh, frustrating. And just uh, a last comment, 
regarding the prices of these drugs and the new coming drugs, there is an increasing concern in countries like Greece and in many, many other European countries that if uh, this model of pricing of new agents continues to, uh, to, to, to augment uh, in the pace that it currently uh, that we currently see, uh, I believe that uh, in many of the healthcare systems, including the Greek healthcare system, this is not going to be sustainable anymore in the coming years. And this is something that the authorities have to look very, very seriously in the coming years to secure access, equitable access to all cancer drugs for our patients. Sorry if I took more of your time, but this is maybe the most important question in my opinion. Thank you, Janice. And I will give Josh, understand that we are running out of time, but this is a very important aspect. Josh, if you like to add anything related to access and how, you know, it's not only about the patients, it's also about the patients getting the drugs. Oh, absolutely. And I feel like what, what we have to go through in the United States probably pales in comparison uh, to what Giannis uh, you know, has to, to deal with to really fight for the best treatments for its patients. But I will say, you know, I will run into this problem where I, I can't get approval for the therapy I want, or it's not the right line, or someone's hospitalized and, and you know, needs the therapy very quickly. And I think the problem too is it's very variable by company, how accessible uh, a free drug program is, uh, an easy access program is, um, and then also it's quite variable by insurance companies as well. And then sometimes you can even face where you get an approval and then you still have an out-of-pocket expense that's thousands of dollars a month. And, you know, this is something where uh, in the era of inflation and, and everything else, uh, paying for rent, other bills, it's very hard. It's not fair to put patients in a position to choose to pay for their heat, their electricity, uh, you know, their rent or their cancer care. And so uh, I agree just wholeheartedly that this is not a sustainable model. Thank you to the two of you. As I say, we're running out of time, but one last question to each of you. And we asked, unfortunately, to be short. Uh, Josh, any other presentation at ESMO that caught your attention? Certainly, lots of great uh, presentations, but I would say that one combination presentation that I thought was uh, quite elegant was the ELIO study and then followed that up with the INSIGHT study. So the ELIO study looked at a prospective evaluation of resistance mechanisms to osimertinib. And I think what was important here is it was a global study and only even on a trial, only a third of patients were able to get tissue biopsies. And we saw resistance mechanisms that we've seen in the past uh, that we know about, met amplification, uh, met alterations. Uh, we saw EGFR-C797S. We also, with protein expression, saw some potential novel targets. Uh, and then in the presentation of the INSIGHT study, we saw continued body of evidence to support the use of uh, MET-targeted therapy uh, in the setting of patients who progress on frontline EGFR-targeted therapy with uh, the identification of MET amplification. And so I think it comes full circle to our NGS discussion. I think it's important to do NGS on all of these patients uh, to, to perform the sequencing because you don't know what you can't, or I should say, you can't treat what you don't know. Uh, and I think these rec mechanisms of resistance are quite heterogeneous and uh, that the mechanisms of resistance are also subclonal. And so it's going to be a very difficult strategy, but an important one in terms of how we treat patients with EGFR mutant non-small cell lung cancer who present on frontline therapy. And I think there are several exciting therapies in the pipeline. 
Sorry, that was not brief. <laughs> That's okay. It's the summary. Testing, testing, testing. I, I'm going to make a t-shirt that says, don't shake my hand. At least you do biomarker testing. <laughs> so, Janice, what was one presentation that caught your attention? Okay, very briefly. Uh, okay, of course, we could stick to the five-year updates of Keynote 189 and 407. Uh, briefly saying that uh, with the uh, chemo IO strategies in the first line, approximately one out of five patients is alive at five years, and patients who complete two years of PEMBRO maintenance have a high probability of being alive at five years. But I want to say one word about an academic trial, an EORTC lung cancer group trial, the APPLE trial, which... Uh, uh, was an academic effort. It may not be that much of clinically relevant anymore because osimertinib is now the standard of care in first-line treatment, not gefitinib. But still, as you know, Apple trial was able to demonstrate that a cDTNA detection strategy to, uh, to help us decide about switching of treatment is feasible and may improve outcomes compared to uh, treatment change based on radiographic progression. So we are living in the era of liquid biopsy. CTDNA detection is going to become even more and more uh, important. And this is a first proof of concept that it can be used to monitor early resistance and define subsequent therapeutic strategy. Thank you to the two of you. And there is so much to talk about, about ESMO, but we are, we're out of time. So I would like to thank you for being part of this, for having a great discussion, for scheduling and for, you know, managing the different time zones. So thank you, uh, Josh. Thank you, Janice, for making the time to join us today and work and work not only seeing patients, but doing it with your research. Thank you. This was a lot of fun. Really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you so much for having us. Thank you. Really enjoyed it. I hope to see you all in person and to anyone listening, thank you for your support in the last almost two years. This is another episode of Lung Cancer Considered. We hope that you will tune in the first and third Tuesdays of every month to give us a listen. You can also engage with us on social media at ISLC or website ISLC.org. Thank you, everyone. Have a good day. Thank you for listening to Lung Cancer Concert. You can find all our podcasts on our website, islc.org, in our newsroom, or on SoundCloud. Please take a moment to rank, like, write comments, and share your favorite episodes with your colleagues.